Hello, everyone, and welcome to Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to join us uh, on Twitter, follow us on Twitter, at Disrupt TV Show. Send us your questions, Ray and I and our distinguished guests, using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer your questions live during the show. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, CEO and founder of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, ZDNet, Forbes, and other publications, too much to keep up with, and perhaps the best follow on Twitter, at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wang. Hey, thanks a lot, Vala. We are excited here to be Vala, and as you know, he is the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce, but more importantly, one of the top influencers for CIOs and CMOs across the land, and more importantly, a big contributor to Huffington Post. He's personally responsible for Twitter's failure to decline in number of followers because people have been following him and catching up and keeping Twitter from falling behind. We are proud to introduce you to our Disrupt TV show today. So who do we have? We've got some cool lineups, and there's very some interesting themes I think our guests will figure out. We have an amazing lineup, and we're going to start the show with our incredible guest, Tasha Keeney, analyst at ARC Invest. Uh, Tasha is an uh, industrial innovation uh, analyst at ARC, focusing on infrastructure development, autonomous vehicles, additive manufacturing, and innovative materials. So basically, she doesn't sleep at all because these are just incredibly robust, rich topics. Uh, previously, Tasha worked as a consultant at Applied Value. You can follow Tasha on Twitter at T-A-S-H-A. A-R-K, Tasha R. Welcome, Tasha, to Disrupt TV. Happy to be here. Thanks. Hey, welcome. You know, you're in some of the hottest technologies. You're following some of the hottest trends that are out there. Um, tell us a little bit about ARK Invest, um, what you do in terms of uh, looking at these disruptive innovations, but more importantly, how are you helping figure people figure out what's a long-term bet versus something that's just going to be a quick trend? So how do you help investors see that? Yeah. So ARK Invest is an investment manager, and we focus solely on disruptive innovation. Um, so the strategy that I cover is industrial innovation. We also look at genomics, next generation internet. Um, so that includes you know, AI, DNA sequencing. Um, and, and basically what we try to do through our funds is um, look at public equity companies that uh, have the best exposure to these disruptive ideas. And so as an analyst, we try to size that opportunity determine, okay, and okay, is this technology economic? Um, and what's the overall market size? And so we have a five-year investment horizon. So what we do when we look at technologies that are a bit farther out, we say, okay, well, when, it, when are investors actually going to realize this opportunity? And so if that's within that five-year time frame, then we'll take a position there. I mean, there's crazy stuff like industrial robots and trying to figure out what Bitcoin's being forked and what's happening with cars. I mean, it's, it's a lot of topics and, and you guys are focused on the alpha, which is, which is impressive, so. Yeah, it's certainly a fun space, always changing. So uh, let's talk about cars. Let's talk about autonomous vehicles. There was certainly a buzz this month with Tesla's new, 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 new car and uh, the potential for opportunity for autonomous vehicles going mainstream. And you had written uh, articles about uh, the growing space in terms of autonomous vehicles. In one article you noted in your research that China will become one of the largest markets for autonomous cars and mobility as a service, reaching $2.5 trillion by 2030. Can you talk to us about your approach in terms of researching autonomous vehicles and 
their impact on society and, and the combination of Internet of Things and AI and new business models that will come uh, and, and stem from uh, autonomous vehicles. Yeah, you know, so the innovation with autonomous cars is we think that, um, so if you compare that to personal say, we think per mile that a cost to drive your personal car is about 70 cents per mile. An autonomous car is going to be used a lot more frequently, and that's going to bring the price down. So now an autonomous taxi can cost half of that price, so like 35 cents per mile. So we think that those economics are really what's going to drive adoption. So, you know, not just in the U.S., um, if you look globally, places like China, where car ownership is much lower, uh, the percentage of the population that has driver's licenses in China is about 20% compared to 70% in the U.S., so this is a lot of people that are going to now enter the point-to-point -point mobility market that didn't have access to it before and can now afford to enter the market. So what's going to happen is, um, you know, the autonomous taxi market, yes, is going to be measured in the trillions in the next 10 years. We think uh, total vehicle miles traveled globally is going to increase maybe 3x today's levels. Uh, so traffic's going to get a lot worse. Wow. Um, but wow. it'll be much more manageable because you'll be sitting in the backseat of an autonomous car instead of, you know, driving at the wheel. Um, and, and we think, you know, a lot of different form factors can emerge. So you see, you know, Tesla has the Model 3. It's the first mar uh, mass market autonomous car. But you can also imagine, um, you know, autonomous buses, autonomous trucks, um, drones we include in that space, you know, uh, autonomous delivery drones. Um, so it's really going to change not just how we get around, but how goods are delivered. Um, everything's going to be much more convenient and affordable. That's amazing. We had the CTO of New York City, Miguel Gamano, on our show last week. And he's, he was tasked by Mayor Bellasio to deliver broadband by 2025. Is that right, Ray? I think it was 2025 to 9 million citizens in New York City. So you think about the, the deli delivering reliable, affordable broadband to 9 million citizens, the, the largest, most populated city in the country, and now you have drones and cars and things connected, all this data, you just mentioned 3x traffic. It's, that's just incredible. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's, I, I, I feel bad for the CIOs and CTOs that actually have to make this stuff work. <laughs> Wow, it's, uh, no, it is crazy when we think about it. Now, what's what do you see the what do you see the market for um, cars and car manufacturers getting from AV four to AV five, which is full autonomy? Is that something that's going to happen quick enough, or is that something we're going to have to wait at, wait out for a little bit, based on uh, what 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 uh, Bob was talking about in terms of internet connectivity and just in general, like you know, cost of lidar, all those things. So. That's a great question. Yeah, you know, I think when people often think of autonomous, they go straight to level five and they think autonomous everywhere in every environment, every type of weather. Um, I, we're thinking more fully autonomous, but, you know, it, it might be in places it, with good weather at first, you know, it might roll out over the course of like three to five years. Um, and we also think there'll be a network of operators, basically professional drivers that can remote into the vehicle and help in rare emergencies. Um, so they'll sort of be that backup component as well. But we think that could happen within the next two years. Um, and so we actually just heard NVIDIA confirm that timeline last night on their earnings yep. call. They have yes, a lot of partners. Did. Yes, they have a lot of partners in the autonomous space. Uh, you know, we hear Tesla saying that Baidu says they'll have a commercial car ready by then. And if you look at the improvement rate of the technology itself, um, Google publishes these reports with the California DMV that show the intervention rate, the rate at which the engineer
because it's um, that's already at 5,000 miles in between interventions, which is amazing. Um, the average person drives about 13,000 miles per year, so that's really only a couple mess ups per year. We think that given that rate of improvement, um, it could be ready in the next two years. So we'll have you know autonomous taxis probably in like California, Arizona areas that they're testing now. That's amazing. So here's an industry that hasn't changed in 100 years, and now it's going through two major transformations, autonomous and electric. But this will require new business models and business model innovation. Based on your research, what are some of the companies that are, that, are, that, are, that are leading the charge in terms of new business model innovation? I thought I read a research from you that, that noted that there's startups that are now paying for autonomous uh, data from users. And, 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 and so it, it's really every company is becoming a data software company. And the value is based on you know, the, 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 the amount of data and insights that can deliver to, to end user. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah, that's a great point. So when you look at the auto industry, I mean, it's really Tesla sort of Tesla sort of taking the lead here. And um, Tesla first started by getting the right engineering talent and really focusing on software. That's not really the expertise of traditional automakers. Sure, they're going there, but it's a transition for them. So, you know, autonomous requires a lot of software talent. We also see this transition to electric vehicles that requires a different form of know-how. So what we think is going to happen to the auto industry in general is it's going to consolidate. That are around today are going to be around in the future, and um, and we already see this happening in the electric vehicle market. It's much more consolidated than the traditional auto industry. So we think players like Tesla and Google that are able to launch autonomous taxi services um, will be much better off than say an automaker you know that doesn't have an EV strategy or that might just be a vehicle manufacturer in the future because we think the services market could be 10x the value of just producing the cars alone. And you're absolutely right, the data is really important here. So that's really Tesla's main advantage, is it's the only automaker that's collecting data from its customer cars on the road. So every car that's equipped with autopilot is sending data back to Tesla, and then they use that to train their autonomous system. No other automaker is doing this, and if you think about it, they're really years behind, because the auto design cycle is about five years. So if you don't have a car on the road today, I mean, you have to play a lot of catch-up to get to where Tesla is, and that's going to let them launch autonomous first. We think that's going to give them a really good advantage to get a geographic monopoly in the areas that they, uh, they launch in. Yeah, we've been talking about that with the war of words between Volvo and Tesla, as you saw with the Model 3 launch. They talked a little bit about safety hitting Volvo where it hurts most, which is kind of interesting to watch. But let's flip to 3D printing. It's another hot topic. Where's the market heading and what's cool? I mean, we've seen crazy things. MIT talked about 3D printing graphene. I mean, uh, some company in Dubai was able to print 200 square meters of concrete a day off of their crane. I mean, this stuff is starting to look real in additive manufacturing. Yeah, you know, 3D printing is so exciting because you get these parts that you could never produce otherwise. So it basically um, to make something layer by layer as opposed to shaving away from a larger block, right, subtractive manufacturing. And that um, gives you all this extra complexity, we say, for free um, because it's a lot cheaper to add that complexity. And you end up getting a part that's better designed for what it's actually supposed to do. Um, and the most exciting thing that we see in in the market is that this is so early days. You know, we look at the opportunity and in our that's less than 1% penetrated. So I'll give you an example. An aircraft today maybe has at most like thousands of 3D printed parts, at most, right? Very few numbers. 
um, there's actually millions of parts on an airplane, and those are all ideal parts for 3D printing because they're very complex and they're low volume. So we think this market's really going to take off in the next 10 years, and it's, it's just at the beginning of that phase. Yeah, I mean, there was crazy things like X-Jet was suspending small metal particles to create sheet metal. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, all this stuff is happening in ways we never thought about. So I keep yeah. seeing in my Twitter stream, you know, 3D building homes cost less than 10000 and 3D, I mean, it, it, it's true, it feels sci-fi-ish, but it's, it, it's real. And uh, so when you talk about additive manufacturing and, and plus AVs, you know, how is this disrupting supply chain? Uh, and, and, and can we talk a little bit about, you know, future of supply chain and what companies should be thinking about? Yeah, well, I, um, you know, one great example that I love is Amazon has this patent for a truck that has a 3D printer inside so it's like 3D printing what you ordered on the go, and then a drone will deliver it to your house. Of and course. You know, that's, of course. That's a little of bit course. further in the future. But like companies like Amazon are, are doing this. Um, you know, Amazon's investing a lot in drone technology. And, and I think um, it's really shortening the supply chain. It's, it's bringing things closer to the end user. Um, that saves a lot on cost, on, on energy and transportation, of course. Um, and, it, and it makes it simple. For, um, for innovation to actually happen. Because with 3D printing, if you're a startup company, um, you can produce uh, prototypes and parts a lot faster and cheaper than you ever could before. So it brings all these new ideas into the market that before were really prohibited by like cost and, and time to production. So are you gonna see some shift? Um, is the commercial drone market gonna take off or are we still in the hobby mode with like Chris Anderson out there showing us his latest gadgets and uh, latest AVs? Yeah, I mean, that's the question. So we're always looking at regulation in the drone industry. I think right now, companies like Amazon and Google are really pressuring the US. I mean, we see Amazon testing in the UK, right? We see Google testing in Australia. Um, so I think I think the FAA definitely feels the heat on that on that front and has sort of, you know, already tried to loosen the regulations on like pilot licenses, for instance. Um, I mean, line of sight in the drone industry is really the main rule that we're looking for to be relaxed to make yep. autonomous happen, and that's where all the economics kick in. Um, but I, I'm, I'm confident that that'll happen soon, considering the progress that we're seeing with with autonomous technology, you know, both in cars and in drones. Yeah, actually, I think they are. They were meeting with the president, uh, the whole lobbying group, uh, sometime late June, uh, in terms of lobbying on, uh, you know, trying to get looser regulations as to what was happening. Any any progress on that? Anyone know if if they've made any moves towards changing the uh, FAA rules on this? So I, I think with this, um, the new presidency, I think they're sort of just getting their feet wet with these new technologies, both on the car and the, and the drone side. But you're certainly right that less regulation will help sort of free up these companies to, to come to market a bit sooner. So very cool. So I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I will anyway. Which one of these innovation excites you most? So if you had to choose to only cover and research one. We've talked about drones, we've talked about uh, 3D printing autonomous cars, um, and all of them have elements of AI and IoT and data, and, but is there one particular area that, that, that interests you most, and which area do you think will have the most impact on, on society in terms of quality of life and, and disrupting businesses and just being a big, big area of interest for the next 20, 10, 20 years? 
Okay, that's a tough question. You're asking me to choose one of my children here, but um, you know, I, I think it, ha it has to be autonomous cars because um, that's going to be the most far-reaching. Um, like I said, it's it's just going to change everything. It's it's not it's going to change the way we get around, but it's also going to change the landscape of cities. You know, you you can picture taxis being more affordable in the suburbs, and 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 I think it it encourages these other ideas like like Hyperloop, for instance. It's like this yeah. crazy idea that Elon Musk has, but if traffic is a lot worse, then Kind of makes sense, you know. Go go beneath ground, yeah. yeah. So go with the boring company. <laughs> boring company, two hundred miles an hour. The, the last test, the Hyper I, One, I, Hyperloop One was two hundred miles an hour. It's amazing. I know. I think someone just beat a ground speed record trying to go as fast as planes uh, this morning. I think that was kind of announced earlier too as well. So we're seeing that. So this is interesting, right? Your three coverage areas, the trifecta of these three coverage areas are, are spawning new business models. It's just like in the old days when we were looking at disruptive technologies, thinking about social, mobile, cloud, big data. I mean, that was old news. It's the intersection of those that created the next set of technologies. And what you're doing right now with, if you think about um, this is why we asked the question earlier about supply chains, is that you know, the supply chain disruption, that autonomy in supply chains, the mass personalization aspect of being able to build what you want in additive manufacturing, and the fact that if you think about how these devices are going to be working with each other and, and augmenting humanity along the way, it's going to get pretty crazy out there. Um, are there companies that you see that are best positioned to take advantage of this and commercialize it, not just from a consumer side or, or even new business models where people are building consortiums or JVs to get them there? Um, this is with the three technologies you're saying? Any with sort of three any? or more or any pieces All of right. that? People jump into different thoughts. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I already, I already mentioned Tesla. I mean, they're really leading the way on autonomous. Um, in the three D printing space, there's a company called Stratasys that sort of yep. rode the wave of three D printing. So, you know, there was like the hype phase in the consumer market. We saw demand slow down for a little bit because of the industrial recession and the strong dollar here in the U S. And now they're sort of turning around. They're making partnerships with aerospace companies. We're seeing again more parts get into airplanes, which is really amazing because those that's like. Aerospace has the toughest requirements. You know, it's like if we can do that, then you can imagine 3D printing spreads into a lot of other industries. Um, so that's a great one. You know, Amazon on the drone front. Um, Google really has the best technology for autonomous. We're watching on the commercialization side. Tesla seems a little bit closer to sort of having that layout of like, okay, this is exactly how it works. We're going to have the Tesla Uber-like network. Um, you know, Google sort of getting its feet wet in, in Arizona right now. Um, we're watching that test closely, but. Um, and then I think uh, Baidu in China, you know, they have a lot of AI expertise. So I think we'll see them um, making a lot of headway there with autonomous. And then if you look at players like SoftBank, it's actually really interesting because it's sort of like a, a venture capital like play on these industries because they're investing so Absolutely. No, that is great. This is awesome. We're getting the rundown from a global perspective on some of the hottest technologies. Uh, we're here with uh, Tasha, and we're actually getting some awesome input and advice. You can follow Tasha, Alice at ARK Invest, um, and more importantly, you can follow her at T-A-S-H-A-A-R-K. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Tasha. My pleasure. You crushed it. That was awesome. Great. I don't know. We got some good. We got some good insight here. So we did. I'm. I'm actually thinking about the companies that Tasha mentioned, and uh, you know, I wonder if Apple will surprise us at some point. Uh, you know, um, 
I know. They're starting to look like laggards right now. It's kind of weird. Yeah, we'll see yeah. if they like pop something up. But Stratasys is another interesting company. They were basically an IBM spinoff. Someone bought the rapid prototyping and then just took off. They bought everything from MakerBot to like all these other com companies. And now they're, they're massive innovation. But who do we have next? We've got some cool innovation ahead of us here. All so, right. We're going to uh, transition to another incredible uh, thought leader, entrepreneur, and, and someone that I really enjoy following on Twitter. We have Ofer Gottlieb, CEO and co-founder of Capital Market Laboratories. He contributes to Yahoo Finance, CNN Money, Market Watch, Business Insider, and Reuters. I think today's show may be his fifth appearance in the last couple of days. So this is a guy you go to when you want to understand you know, futures. And Ofer was named um, the 14th best finance follow on Twitter. So, you know, we only bring the best and brightest on Twitter to Disrupt TV. Uh, he, he's the inventor of Forensics Alpha Model, FAM, and co-inventor of Accounting and Governance, gover governance Risk Model, both now owned commercially by MSCI. FAM and AGR are used by asset managers worldwide with over $1 trillion of assets under management. The FAM model was named by Mr. Gottlieb as one of the most recognized names in all of quantitative finance. Wolfers mathematics, measures uh, theory, and machine learning background stems from the graduate work and mathematics uh, studies at Stanford University, and his time spent as an option market maker on the New York Stock Exchange and CBOE exchange floor, so practitioner as well as uh, an academic. Please follow Ofer on Twitter at O-P-H-I-R-G-O-T-T-L-I-E-B. Welcome, Ofer, to Disrupt TV. Hi, thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. Thanks, Vala. Hey, thanks a lot. We're so excited to see you here. I mean, I mean, you you putting stuff into, I mean, algos, ideas, stuff. I mean, you basically created a brand new kind of look at what's happening in capital market laboratories. So talk a little bit about what's happening there. How did you get started? And you know, what gets you excited? Sure. Thanks, Ray. So my uh, life before Capital Market Laboratories was very institutional based, which is um, essentially writing research, composing research, uh, breaking research for institutions, which um, in, you know, sort of the, um, look, the harshest way to say it is kind of making rich people richer. You know, that's a harsh way to look at it. And I just, I just couldn't do it anymore. And so we started Capital Market Laboratories to really break the information asymmetry that has benefited the few at the cost of the many. And um, I was sort of firsthand at seeing what this information asymmetry looked like. I was the creator of some of this information asymmetry almost accidentally. And um, I wanted to bring it to the rest of the world, to retail. And so our research sits next to, let's say, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, all the large institutions as a part of um, Thomson First Call. But while everyone else is paying, let's say, $2,000 a month for their terminal, we're the anti-institution. We make it available to retail for, you know, pennies on the dollar. And that, that's generally our idea, to bring technology expertise, machine learning expertise, and finance expertise, along with actual trading expertise, to retail and take it outside of the bubble that's been created um, for institutions. Wow, democratizing information for investment. Huge. So That's amazing. So, so the way retail investors now interact with the market and the access they have been given is unprecedented. So what does it mean when you're the anti-institution and you're providing the industry with information for free and do we still need insights? Yeah, it's so, 
I view the world or we view the world of financial technology essentially having come in three waves and we're, we're trying to lead the third wave. The first wave was the internet, you know, back in the early nineties, we still got stock quotes from a newspaper from a day ago, right? You looked at, there's the business section, like, Oh, that's where my stock is. Uh, and then the internet came along, you know, this thing called the internet, uh, which, you know, it wasn't very successful. <laughs> and you know, you got, you, now there was like real time stock quotes.com and Yahoo finance. And so people could get stock quotes, which is, you know, like the, most basic piece of information. Also, um, Ameritrade was purchased by Toronto Dominion Bank and Schwab and E-Trade and Fidelity came around. And now we could trade stocks. We were no longer isolated from the ability to see prices and to trade stocks. So that was a huge, huge uh, revolution, but it didn't really increase the amount of assets held in the stock market by retail, right? So then, then we went through this great boom, a bust, and then we had the Great Recession. And after the Great Recession, FinTech came around again to disrupt. And it added on top of this ability to trade and this ability to see prices and it democratized all of financial data. So financial statement data, insider transactions, and it made it all much less expensive for companies to build on top of. And so I just can give you an example. Uh, even in the short history of CML, we, we had a, a data feed that cost six figures a year and that data feed is now $5,000 a year. So wow. financial technology has destroyed this blockage that was uh, to, to some of the more um, granular data. But now we see ourselves in the third wave. We, we still look at it and see retail investors are still underinvested in the stock market and equities in general. It's really the third wave that we're trying to lead, which is turning all of this data. It's very much like the rest of technology. It's taking big data and turning yeah. it into information, or as we like to say, just turning it into knowledge, right? And it's when you can cross that final uh, path that that will finally enable retail to be able to fully invest in the same way that institutions can invest. That is with the access to data, the access to trading, and the access to turn that data into knowledge. And that's really where we come in. And this third wave is powered by what? Machine learning, AI, advanced analytics? It's, it's both. So a part of it is gonna come from better technology, which is um, implementing both what we call a supervised learning machine, uh, super, uh, supervised machine learning, which is not, you know, sort of the sexiest part. It's just kind of, it just give, it's statistics given a really cool name, machine learning. Some of it is from unsupervised learning. That's learning as things go on. And that's where things like artificial intelligence come in. And you can look at the stock market in certain ways without trying to predict it. Look at the market in certain ways and see behaviors. And it can expose trends and patterns, much like Tasha was actually talking about. Um, and, and it opens up the reality to retailers. Institutions have known this for a while. And so you do that. Also, a part of it is really, it's just kind of white knuckling it, which is that you take, with this vast increase in uh, access to data, there's also been a vast increase in number of publications out there online, right? There's just so many financial sites. And that, that's normal, that, that should happen. It's helpful, but it's gonna collapse again because a lot of the journalists out there don't have a background in technology. They don't have a background in finance. And it's actually hurting investors, right? We're getting false narratives, not on purpose. There's no impropriety here. It's just, we're getting false narratives. And so it's gonna come back down and we're gonna need to find insights and expertise that lie outside of an institution. Where can we find it? You don't have to Goldman Sachs, go to Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan. JP Morgan just raised their limit. You have to have seven and a half million dollars to have a JP Morgan account and get their research, right? Like this is totally unrealistic for the vast- So Ray is all set. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ray's, Ray's good, but the rest of us are in a lot of trouble. I don't know when last time they called me. I think I'm off the work. <laughs> So, but but hey, you know it's it's actually interesting. I mean, when you when you think about what you just said, I mean, we are seeing a, a a knowledge gap, and this knowledge gap that's happening is is because folks don't have an understanding of that impact um, on on the research and on how to call the analysis. Tons of information, 
but not a lot of not a lot of good analysis. And, and one of something that was awesome in analysis that I read and actually on your feed too was really this thing about Apple's long term future. I mean, you cover some great brands: Amazon, Google, Facebook, um, and. You know, you saw a pattern inside Apple's numbers that not a lot of people caught, and it was very, very interesting because most people have been short-term focused, and they also haven't really understand the impact of what install base incumbency is. So, talk a little bit about what you saw in the Apple earnings, um, and people get an idea of that rich insight that you're able to pull out from from your models. Well, Fur sure. is a he's a mythbuster. So yes. talk about freaking awesome. No, it's awesome. Yeah. So Apple, so there's a little bit of an uncomfortable reality that I'm going to bring up here. And that is um, a lot of the media companies out there need web traffic. And that's okay. That doesn't make them bad people. They need web traffic. That's a lot. So Apple meets Taylor Swift meets Trump on a blockchain. Exactly. So I can give you insights from inside a publication company. An article on Apple can get anywhere from five to 5,000 times the page views as an article on, on Google. Yep. That's how powerful the Apple brand is. So there's so much news pushed out about Apple. Part of it, most of it, is because people need clicks. And in that comes some false narratives. And it's again, I don't, I'm not claiming any impropriety on anyone's fault. I, I believe everyone is well-intentioned. No, 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 no. This is, we, we know this for sure. I mean, we, yeah. I, for a while on, on Forbes, I was a Forbes contributor for a while, and then I got off of it. They were like, you know, just tag everything with Apple. We're like, yeah. what? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it, ridiculous. Yeah, so there's some, some false narratives which I think are punishing retail investors, unfortunately. So one false narrative which is even broader than Apple is this idea, and this is actually, you can find this on Vala's stream as well. Smartphones are not shrinking. We need to stop drawing a corollary between smartphones and the PC market. It's absolutely a false narrative. The PC market has shrunk for seven years in a row. Smartphones are expected to grow 44% from 2014 to 2019. It's not shrinking. The growth is slowing because there are 2 billion smartphones out there and there's only 6 or 7 billion people on planet Earth. It's not shrinking. So we have to just stop that wildly false narrative. Um, and it's very easy to come to that narrative if you are very myopic and look at sort of some weird numbers. It's just not true. Now, more broadly, ask me about Apple. Well, okay, Apple created the iPhone, which is the most successful piece of technology in the history of the world if you measure success by profits. And I think that's a reasonable way to measure success yeah. in the financial markets. Right? I think there are other great ways to measure success. but okay iPhone is the most, exactly. IPhone, if I could turn my phone on itself, it would be an iPhone. I don't think that's possible yet. Um, <laughs> there you go. Stop so, buying multiple of them. We're, we're, we're letting over win. You're going <laughs> to be buying more than that soon. You'll see. So um, there's this narrative that's been perpetuated by the media with no impropriety intended, I believe, which is that Apple is a phone company and it's simply not true. So two years ago, the iPhone represented 63% of Apple's revenue in what we call calendar Q2. Fast forward to use, it's not 55% of revenue. And yes, that's a lot, but let's keep that, keep in mind that Facebook has 98% of its revenue from one product, that's ads. Alphabet has 80% of its revenue from ads. So 55% is a lot, it's less than 63% and it's less than 98%. But even further is that Apple has developed, which is really interesting, there wasn't a lot of sleuthing that was needed here. Sometimes there's a lot of sleuthing in technology, really like look and magnifying glasses. And this really wasn't it. Tim Cook, Apple CEO has been saying out loud for years now, Watch Apple services, which is uh, Apple Pay, the App Store, um, iTunes, things like that. So Apple services is now, let's say, one-sixth of Apple's revenue-ish. And um, it is now the size of a Fortune 100 company, but that doesn't really mean anything to anyone. It's the size of Facebook. One-sixth of <laughs> Apple is the size of Facebook. And it's growing at 22% compounded annual growth, and it's expected to double in three years, four years. Um, and so 
like this is just a part of Apple that's growing and you, the Apple doesn't need to see sales of iPhones grow quarter over quarter. There's just more iPhones being sold. Even if Apple has a bad quarter, they didn't sell negative iPhones. They sold 40 million, right? right? And so Apple services are gonna grow irrespective of that growth. And we could see 300 that. Every, 300 every minute. Yeah, you're right. Right, right. So, so <laughs> Apple services grew 22% year over year while, year while iPhones grew 1%, right? So this is an entire business line for Apple. And, it's now actually, I'll give the mainstream media a little bit of credit here. They, they caught on to it now. So it, it's now a part of our narrative of Apple's narrative and it's expanding and that's great. But it was just four years late. And if people had looked at it, that, you know, retail investors in general could have been, could have avoided the fear tactics that kind of pushed Apple to new lows. And now the stock's up 60% in two years. And it's it was the only way I could get in. I thought it was great. Yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. No, so I don't have any Apple stock. So, <laughs> that's, stock. Oh, yeah. so let me, I actually have to, full disclosure, I, I am long Apple stock. So uh, th th <laughs> while I'm trying to be objective, there's naturally subjectivity subjectivity, and something you have a position. Well, he to put his money on us. You're betting your money right. on what, what you're saying. So it's good. Exactly. And some of the other really interesting narratives that came out there is that Apple Watch is a failure. The first Apple Watch sold more than the first iPhone. Just, just think about that for a second. The second Apple Watch sold basically the same as the second iPhone. It's not a failure. Apple's profits are so large, it's almost impossible to move the needle. The first and second versions of Apple technology don't sell well. The first iPhone was not a success. Everyone <laughs> thinks of the iPhone as the iPhone became a success because of the App Store and version three. And it became yeah. the best selling piece of technology in the history of the world. And what's coming with the new, uh, the new Apple Watch? LTE connectivity, which is just a fancy way of saying it doesn't have to be tethered to the iPhone. No. It's going to be a cell phone in Finally. itself. Finally. And you think, how can you use a watch to talk on a phone? I mean, you can't hear anything. Well, Apple has something called an AirPod, which is still on back order for a month, <laughs> having been released a year ago. Apple knows, Apple knows exactly where it's going. And we just, everyone just needs to take a breath when they start getting negative about the company. Just maybe just hypothesize that the most successful company in the world, the largest company in the world, actually does know what it's doing and perhaps <laughs> they can't move as quickly as they used to because when they want to go to an OLED screen, they take up the entire OLED supply on planet Earth. So it takes time for them to innovate. So these are some of the narratives surrounding Apple that I think have been uh, a bit misleading. And, and the final is just that Apple does have a next, next big thing. You don't, sometimes with some of our tech companies, you really have to kind of guess like, what are they going to do next? Apple doesn't, Tim Cook has said it openly for the last three years. The next big things for Apple are augmented reality, which Vala shares about all the time. It's amazing shares. And healthcare technology, which Vala also shares. These are two markets that are the scale of Apple. They're measured in trillions. And, and Tim Cook has said, this is what we're going after. Maybe they'll fail, but we don't have to guess what the next big thing is for Apple. He's telling us out loud, this is what we're doing. Darn, no more clickbait. Darn. <laughs> <laughs> And I actually think that we spent the first 20 minutes talking about autonomous vehicles. You know, I would not be surprised if five years from now we're talking about uh, an, 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 another major player in this space uh, that, that has, uh, you know, with, again, with 261.5 billion in cash and uh, this company, you can't, this, whatever they set their focus and energy, it's likely to be a, a dominant player. So this first to market, matter today in driving overall growth uh, metrics or is profitability versus market share? What are your thoughts about that? So it's really interesting because technology has enabled innovation uh, to, to be so much more rapid, right? It's so much faster yeah. to find a trend and follow. Look what Microsoft did when Amazon started the cloud. Microsoft said, oh, we should do that. Um, so I think being a first mover right now, it's really unfortunate to say is actually a disadvantage. So someone has to invent it. So we need the first mover. But because we can evolve so rapidly with technology to copy, 
Um, what, we're, what, what first movers do essentially is they build a market. They make a market and it's extremely expensive to make a market. TiVo had to build a market. This idea that we can record TV and save it for later. It doesn't even make any sense. When it first came out, they didn't even know what to do with it. Now, yeah, we DVR, man. You know, and so when, so first, first movers really get punished and it's, it's unfortunate. Also, I think there's this overwhelming power now in the five largest technology companies in the world. It's, just, it's a little bit of cognitive dissonance because we tend to think that things happening today are bigger than they were in the past. We're just, yes. we're just humans. We can't help it. So falling to some subjective cognitive dissonance, it feels like the five largest tech companies are just so large and so powerful, nothing can happen. And they really are stifling. In many ways, they're stifling. While they're helping innovation, they're stifling it. Like Facebook was built on a platform of imitation and it continues to imitate uh, with what Snapchat is doing. And so, you know, these are things where like, being the first mover, it's so critical to the world to be able to do it. Likely not the best advantage, but, you know, um, as Tasha said, like Tesla's really a first mover with autonomy and electric cars in many ways, and they will reap those benefits. And so th there are some technologies where, you know, it's just overwhelmingly expensive to make a market, but it's worth it. And Tesla, what Tesla did was worth it. For other companes like Snap, things like that, no, absolutely. You talk, when you talk about Apple and Alphabet and Microsoft and Amazon and Facebook, I believe they're the top five. Right. And then 10 cents, seven, like seven of the 10 yeah. largest market cap are data and I would argue more and more software companies. Yeah. And, and, and the second one on that list, as you mentioned, you know, uh, uh, Alphabet was to, or Google 21st search engine to enter the market in 1998. Right. Right. So there's been a decade plus history, two decades, like first mover advantage. And it's amazing that you say it's counterintuitive. It may be actually a disadvantage. Yeah. Uh, so sure. encouraging yeah. for businesses. Hey, and you know, related to that, I mean, it's, it's, we know, all know how to go after these brand names for investment. You know, we hear them all the time. But something that um, was very interesting in, in some of the work that we've been looking at from your end is, look, you showed a, a bank rate money Paul survey that more than half of Americans don't own any stock investments and they're missing out on this. And millennials are like in the same kind of group of this in terms of getting folks to invest. Let's start with the first one, right? Um, why, why are only half of Americans investing in stock? What's wrong with retail investing today? And you know, what, what, is it just the information aspect that you were talking about earlier? Or is there something else that's keeping people from putting their money in the market? Yeah, so I have a slightly different view of this. I think retail investors are acting absolutely uh, normally. Uh, so they're, it's, there's, it's, these are rational actors, not irrational actors. When you have money, money is simply this thing that we must have to, to exist, especially in first world countries, right? So you can note the importance of money and how it's earned to then take that money that's earned and how important it is to put it and invest it in something you don't understand. That is fundamentally irrational. Retail investors who don't understand the stock market should not be investing. They should get help to invest, but they shouldn't be doing it themselves until they can find some sort of canonical source, some sort of trusted source that says, this is what's happening. It's not a recommendation or not. This is what's happening. Uh, what Tasha was saying, like, here are some trends, here are some companies that are following them. Does this make sense to you? So I think it's going to be the third wave that I was talking about in financial technology that's going to finally create this explosion of retail investing, and it's going to unlock trillions of dollars for the market. And um, like I said, I, I see the world differently. I, I think I hear a lot of sort of punishment of millennials and retail because they're acting irrationally. It's the best asset. It's absolutely rational to not invest in something you don't understand. Um, and if when this third wave of financial technology comes around where we can turn data into knowledge, into information, then I think people will start investing in that's very rational. They'll start to understand what they're investing in. 
This is some awesome data visualizations on the Capital Market Labs website. Definitely check it out. We're here with Ofer Gottlieb. Um, he is the CEO and co-founder of Capital Market Laboratories, and you can follow him at Ofer, O-P-H-I-R, Gottlieb, um, for some awesome insights. I know you've been like hard at work out there, and thank you for being on the show. You've been massively busy out in the markets, uh, especially it's earnings week. So thank you so much for being on Disrupt TV. My pleasure. Thank, thank, you, thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, you were terrific. Wow. Uh, Ray, I mean, is it any surprise why Fridays are uh, our favorite time of the week? Uh, Dude, these are like, I mean, after yeah. the first two guests, my two like going 100 miles an hour. 40 minutes already? And then who do we have next? How are we going to keep up? <laughs> yeah, talk about uh, our cleanup hitter spot. So, this is where uh, uh, we bring guests, especially a guest who's actually been a co host on Disrupt TV. Uh, it's an honor to have Richie Aguaro, Chief Digital Officer at Quintilius IMS and author of a new book, Blockchain Trust Companies, as our last guest. Richie, and I had to, I'm, I apologize, Richie, I had to reduce your bio because we only have 20 minutes, brings <laughs> <laughs> breadth and depth in his experience as a C-level Fortune 500 company executive, I believe one of the first Chief Digital Officers in the world a serial author, a TED speaker, and his TED talk is gonna is has a trajectory of becoming one of the most popular TED talks uh, that you'll see. Uh, owner of international pat patents, founder of multiple ventures. He's a keynote speaker, as I mentioned, the TED talks. An angel investor, a board member, and and I can go on and on. He's an adjunct professor of blockchain management at Syracuse University. He's delivered over one thousand blockchain, I'm sorry, one hundred blockchain keynotes across the world and has written some of the most read blockchain blogs and some of the best blockchain shares that Ray and I put on Twitter. His interviews on blockchain, uh, advisory work with governments and venture funds and TEDx talk on blockchain has massively simplified uh, the concept and understanding of this revolutionary technology uh, and framework. Uh, in his book, he covers the so what of blockchain to the, uh, to the opposed to the crowded yeah, you know, here's what blockchain is. So an incredibly important book. Every CXO should have one on their desk. Another must follow on Twitter at R-I-C-H-I-E-E-T-W-A-R-U. Welcome, Richie, to Disrupt TV. And what is in the background? Yes. What's going on? What's back up? What's happening there? You uh, in, in, I, I'm in my uh, my nephew's uh, uh, playroom in Orlando, Florida. So I got all sorts of Marvel uh, things going on here. So uh, this is this is my nephew Adi's. Uh, Adi's hey, this is the first superhero the first edition. I'm the executive of a multi-billion uh, company and uh, in a fantastic background. So that's awesome. Yeah, no, no, no. Welcome to the superhero edition of uh, Disrupt TV. So hey, you've been on the show lots of times, and as Vala was saying, you know, you've been co-hosting. You've done things. Tell us what's changed. I mean, quintiles, IMS. You guys are going like crazy. Um, it's been massive changes. You've made some product announcements, some launches. What's happened since the time you've been on last? So, yeah, you know, with Quintiles IMS, it's very, it's very exciting, man. We've gone to a horizontal, all right? So many vendors in, in large industries are verticals where they play in a specific space because of some of the M&A activity that we've, uh, we've actually put on the board. We've been able to build offerings where we can become that partner that starts with our company, uh, with our customers in their supply chain, and then remove the silos and move uh, all the way over to the other side. So I'm super excited about that. That uh, keeps me busy during the day. And then at night, uh, I get a chance to do all the rest of the stuff that I do. 
<laughs> I want to. It's an amazing company. I love the partnership we have with you. I love the fact that you inspire us at Salesforce to think bigger, do bigger, uh, innovation. So it's 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 kudos to you and your entire company for, as as Job said, putting a ding in the universe. But let's talk about your book. In your book, you said if you're starting a company, running one, or trying to save one from its Kodak moment. Uh, this book is a sobering reminder that every company is at risk of being disrupted by a trusted version of itself. And that word trust is in the title of your book. So tell us about what inspired you to write the book, Blockchain Trust Companies, and what is a tweetable takeaway from this incredible potential bestseller that we have in the market now? Well, I think the only tweetable takeaway is is buy the book and read it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on it. Hey, so, so since the last time we talked, I think, uh, you know, most of us that get to a stage in our career where you start to be able to see the landscape, you shift from, you know, being an operator to someone that starts to introspect quite a bit and then start to synthesize, right? If you think about the, the layered cake of what drives commerce today, right? You've got everything from electricity to network to storage, compute servers, operating system, business processes, all the way up to, to brand and marketing and perception management, right? And a lot of us have spent our careers in that space operating. The last two years or so, uh, I've really started focusing on synthesizing on what are we doing as a species around commerce, right? And taking a very historical look at some of the trends here. And when I look at the last couple of hundred years and what we've done as, as operators in the large companies, we've, we've been able to lower transaction costs quite a bit, right? And that's a good thing. And that came from a series of, of paradigms that, that we've brought to market. We've been able to increase transaction reach uh, with things like the internet. We've been able to drive transaction speed, uh, particularly with things like mobile phones and wireless networks. But in the midst of, of creating all that capacity value, to commerce as a whole, we've created a lot of complexity that you can encapsulate into this following sentence. The one thing that we have not changed in commerce is we haven't changed transaction trust to trend positively. Transaction trust is actually trending down. And now we try to bridge that trust gap by either intermediaries, uh, whether it's be the Department of Motor Vehicles or a bank, right? Um, we have an increase in lawyers, we put more contracts in place, but lo and behold, if you think about the long-term trajectory of where we're pointing to as a species, as we cooperate and coordinate the exchange of value to exist as human beings, we're moving to a place where if we don't correct the trajectory of the trust that's in a transaction, uh, we're, we're gonna be in some bad places, right? You see that with things like fake news, right? Not that I'm a Trump supporter, but it's, it's the absence of trust. And so about two years ago, when I really started to play around with uh, the blockchain protocol, not necessarily Bitcoin, but the protocol itself, I, you know, I, I came upon this moment where I started to really introspect and really think about what we're doing here. Now, the, the, the TED Talk uh, is a massive in introspection exercise. If you want to go through introspection, if you can't get on the TED stage, pretend like you're going to get on one. It forces you to look internally a lot. I've really honed in on this notion that any company in the world, I don't care who you are, Apple or, or the government can be easily replaced by a trusted version of your exact self, okay? And I think trust is a new differentiator. I think we're in the world right now where experience 
is the differentiator, but I think we're going to move to a place where trust is a differentiator. And obviously, if you, for those who are intimate and understand the, the science and the invention of, uh, you know, cryptography and distributed ledgers and immutable uh, configurations of distributed uh, data sets to understand how that almost democratizes trust for us, I think uh, you kind of have to stop operating, raise your head up and go, oh, shit, uh, <laughs> we need to start over. Well, hey, you, know, you raise a great point. I mean, this trust or the lack of trust or the ability to support trying to verify trust is creating massive friction in these marketplaces, right? And, and you're, you're talking about where synchronous ledgers, distributed ledgers, blockchain technology are actually taking that piece out of the, out of the whole equation. So, but, but explain that in, in a way that a CIO, a CFO, or, or even like a CEO could understand, like, what does that ultimately mean? Yeah, I think, you look, I think the, the differentiation uh, of trust is very easy. I mean, if we want to get down to actually how it works, the, the bottom line is the following. Data as it stands today, if I were to give you a data set, it is not impossible, but it is fairly difficult to decipher whether that data set was tampered with or changed. Okay, mm -hmm. so let's, uh, let's use a simple data set. Let's say you guys wanted to hire me to be your driver, your chauffeur. Okay, and you said to me, hey, Richie, I really need to see your driver record. Okay, because I, I need to know that you're gonna be safe when you drive my kids around. Sure. I come to you and I go, Vala, you know what? I got my driver record. I'm one of those neurotic people that kept records in an Excel file of every speeding ticket that I got and every accident that I got. And it's super, super, super well kept. Here, man, here's my driver records, okay? Don't bother with what the DMV has. They have. They, they don't have the correct version. <laughs> you would never, ever trust it. You would never trust it, okay? You would go to an intermediary, which is a DMV. Now, we do this today. We don't realize that we use all these intermediaries in commerce in the supply chain of value and influence to Carfax. validate trust. Right, exactly. So now, if, I, if, if, you, if you have a, a data base of driver data on a blockchain, and we're not going to get into cryptography and keys and immutability, but it comes with a small algorithm, okay? And I can open up my phone and I give it to you and I says, hey man, here's my driver record. Okay, this is all the tweets from Disrupt TV. Here's my driver <laughs> records, okay? And you can, you can very quickly run your algorithm on it and it says, oh, I can see that it was written by the various parties and it wasn't tampered with. Suddenly, you can trust that data in a one-to-one -one exchange. Remember, I'm not showing you the DMV's copy, I'm showing you my copy. Wow. because it's immutable and it's running on a ledger. Now, it's a very simple example. In the TED Talk, I talk about tangerines because I love to eat them, and that's why there's a tangerine <laughs> on the cover of a book. So it's, it's a bit of an Easter egg, right? Why is there a tangerine on the book? But if you take that and you scale that out to commerce, mate, we don't have data sets today where we can use to exchange with each other that come with the design to in, in, to in. To, to prosecute the validity of those data sets in them. You always have to go to someone else to prosecute the validity, and that's the crux of the problem in commerce today. But you said that in the book, right? I mean, you said the printing press closed the knowledge gap, the steam engine closed the power gap, and the internet is closing the distance gap, and now blockchain, as you're saying, is closing the trust gap, pretty huge. Yeah, that's a profound statement, and it's great to create those analogies so we can see historical uh, impact of technology in terms of reducing gap. Um, so, so you know, you mentioned fake news. A lot of the fake news uh, is sourced on social media. 
And um, when you think about the opportunity that perhaps blockchain has in terms of validating um, uh, uh, and reducing the gap and, 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 and allowing folks that participate on social networks to recognize accurate information versus, versus fake news. So do you think combination of blockchain distributed inherent in, in its distributed ledger as well as technologies like machine learning will get to a point where social networking will be profoundly different in the near future i'm talking a few years not decades where when you put content out there the network will validate where there's whether the, the information is accurate and trustworthy and over time you get a rating and your influence will be built on the fact that the network believes that, you know, will give you a trust rating. So when Richie puts something on Facebook over time, he has a 99.7% accuracy and it's blockchain and machine learning that's allowing this to, to, to really change this phenomenon of people being frankly misinformed at large scale. Is yeah. that where blockchain may potentially go in the future? So that that's one aspect of it, right? Mm -hmm. And guys, you got to forgive me. I have the worst luck. Like the lawn guys just came right outside the window and are starting to mow the lawn. <laughs> um, we can't hear uh, them. We can't hear yeah. them. <laughs> so so it's hard to think about trust without thinking about sharing. Okay. Once you think about trust and how it changes, you have to think about sharing and how it changes. The issue that we have today is because data inherently is not trusted. We share differently. When you want trusted sharing, you have to go to an intermediary. But when the data is trusted, you will start to see an increase in sharing between unfamiliar parties in a very intimate way. This is the big kaboom that changes the trajectory of all of commerce, not just news. Because now, I might be able to publish uh, my stock positions. Okay, Now, you may not be able to get the details of how much I own, or but but I may be able to put my stock positions out there, and without you having to go to E-Trade or or Goldman Sachs, you might be able to interrogate it and yeah. see right away where I am. So you're going to see an increase in sharing of data sets that were once kept very 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 close to the heart, and you'd have to go to an intermediary to see it. You're going to see democratized sharing of information that we haven't shared uh, uh, before to unfamiliar parties in an intimate way, hmm. okay? So think about, think about the first instantiation of blockchain, which is Bitcoin, right? Yeah. Bitcoin is the blockchain, what AOL chat is to the internet, just the first instantiation of it, and quite frankly, not the most interesting instantiation of it. 3,400 bucks for Bitcoin. Right, 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 yeah. <laughs> right. But, but, what, but what it does is that it's the ability to be able to trust information from someone else that's willing to share it. Okay, and that type of sharing of data to unfamiliar parties is an intimate way is going to create those conditions that you're describing, Vala, where suddenly when you look at my post, you'll be able to see the rest of things behind there about me, and you will know that I'm not lying about it because you can interrogate and prosecute the validity of the data at a very, very low price and high cost. That's the difference in having one company being existing today, whether it's the biggest and largest company in the world or not, and someone else standing up going, I'm just like them, except I'm completely trusted. You can see transparently all of my stuff that I'm willing to share easily. And by the way, there's no cost to you to validate the data. The data comes with the ability to prosecute its fidelity. That's where trauma starts to change. 
Is this no. why Tapscott believes blockchain is bigger than the internet? Well, I don't know why Tapscott believes blockchain is bigger than the internet. I agree with the statement, <laughs> but as you can imagine, <laughs> there are people who understand the subject matter and then there are people who describe it. <laughs> so what we're seeing is what I'm saying is that what I'm saying is I want to debate the two tap shots together live. That's what I want to do. <laughs> I don't think, I, but I don't think either one of you have an opposing view. You both are what you just described is an incredibly disruptive model that will impact every business in every industry, and that's pretty yep. much this. No, 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 no I got, I, I got it as well. But at the same time, I'm actually writing the code and have chains of my own, and I understand yeah, the right. details of what's going on. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so we'll leave it at that, and let's 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 go deep on on some of the areas around commerce um, by blockchain. And you hit a couple some historical aspects that were really important in your book. And and I think when you know when I first read the draft and and you know and and had the honor to write your forward, I mean honestly, I was looking at this like man, no one's really thought about it from the historical perspective, right? You talk about blockchain. Blockchain as finance, identity, reputation, inventory, market agreement, and cooperative data sets. And you really talked about how, in history, how each one of those innovations led to the next innovation. So when you think about where blockchain is headed today and you know, what's going on, take, talk, share with us that perspective, because I think that was very insightful in the book. Yeah. So I think, I think the maturity model is really interesting here. So if you think about where it is today, most of what we're talking about is trust. Okay, and we're talking about trust in data sets. Financial data set is obviously that's around Bitcoin and all the ICOs and cryptocurrencies, right? But then you have identity data, reputation data, inventory data that's sort of going left to right. But then there are notions of consensus. Okay, once you have trusted data and you have sharing between unfamiliar parties in a familiar way, now you can have consensus about truths. Okay, and think about consensus around financial data identity data, reputational data, right? Consensus around reputational data in the healthcare market, right? Yep. We can't agree on the efficacy of drugs or not. And then you get to what I call autonomous uh, uh, markets, right? Which is how do you really enable technology to execute smart contracts on high fidelity data that's trusted, that consensus can be algorithmically calculated to almost automate certain parts of commerce. And you look at that sort of, seven by three matrix, which is in the book, and you realize that sort of yep. Bitcoin is on the top left here and decentralized autonomous organizations are on the bottom right around autonomy and corporate data. And if you plot the use cases around that, you recognize that where we are from a historical perspective is that while we've changed transaction speed, transaction cost, transaction reach, all that type of stuff, the actual structure of a corporation hasn't really changed since the East India Trading Company. <laughs> okay, it has not really changed. And so when I go back to what I just talked about, which is that layered cake, starting with electricity and network and compute and storage all the way up to brand, what I realized in the last two years as I started to introspect is there's two layers below that, which is how we organize and how we cooperate. Okay, and blockchain is a is a disruption in those layers, right? Cloud was a disrupt it was a disruption in the storage and compute layer, right? The internet was a disruption in the network and connectivity layer, right? Blockchain is a disruption at how we organize and co cooperate. We're going to see different formations, uh, thousands of them, if I may, between you know, commons markets and fiat markets above and beyond S-Corps and C-Corps and LLCs and, and, and that type of stuff. And that really creates what I believe 
will be a trusted state of commerce. That's why I call it trust companies, right? So, and that's so, why I talk about trust being the differentiator. So, so Richie, does that mean the challenge, the biggest challenge for blockchain will be culture and strategy? Or, I mean, how we organize, how we go to market? What are some of the challenges that's going to prevent companies from being disrupted when it comes to adoption, understanding, and deployment of blockchain? I think the biggest challenge with blockchain right now, and this is why I took the time to write the book, right? Guys, if you think about paradigms over time, paradigms are shaped based on discussion, okay? The future is what we discuss, right? The future is what we agree on. The future is what we imagine and we're able to lead people towards. So I wanted to be a part of that discussion to be able to shape the blockchain conversation, specifically because of the question you're asking. To me, the biggest hindrance to blockchain being what it could be to bring uh, 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 trusted commerce to the marketplace are the incumbents, right? Those who are not trusted that can't be that can't be trusted fast enough. You know, I, I see IBM all the time playing in blockchain, right? There's like six people that can spell blockchain at IBM, and I'm like, okay, what are you guys doing, right? But it's because, because but it's because they want to shape the conversation to be about Bitcoin and finance data. Right. And what I'm doing is I'm saying, guys, don't do that to humanity. Let's be a part of conversation that actually takes the distrust out of our existence as a species. We have an opportunity today because we have four paradigms that are hardening at the same time. We have blockchain, IoT, AI and cloud finally starting to harden at the same time. We can change four layers of the layer cake at the same time and truly change the shape and complexion of commerce. Wow. All right, real quick. You're teaching a class at Syracuse University. This is crazy. You're teaching a class. What is this? IST 400, 600, blockchain management. Tell us a little bit what people are going to expect, and then we're going to have to close out. We're running out of time. So. Well, very, very quickly. I'm super excited about this. Uh, I was very, very thrilled when the SU um, uh, dean reached out and, and asked for me to teach the class. It's going to be based on the book. So the book is actually reading material for the class. So the book became a textbook, like within the first week of being published, which is <laughs> which is weird. My wife's like, you're becoming more of a nerd every day. Uh, but guys, in order for us to create this change, it's not just us, right, that are operators and synthesizers and thought leaders. We have to go back up of the supply chain, right, of our species and really start to create this change in academia so that when these kids are coming out, they're not just all launching an ICO. Professor Richie Etwaru, Professor Etwaru, CDO at Quintiles IMS, an author of Blockchain Trust Companies. You can follow him on Twitter at Richie Etwaru, one and only. Thank you for being on the show. First Thank you very much. Hall of Fame, Disrupt TV. First <laughs> Hall of Fame, no question. And a great co-host when we all have to take off on a break. No, it's kidding. What an, amazing, what an amazing individual. And a lot of people don't know he's also a restauranteer. So now you can take his classes, you can eat amazing, delicious food at his restaurant, and then you can read his blogs and book. And, you know, he's a triple threat. We call him a Navy SEAL of digital business transformation. <laughs> Master foodie professor and entrepreneur. All right. Hey, thanks for being on the show, man. Thanks, Thanks, man. Bye-bye. Be good. All right. Wow. Wow. So we've hit AV, blockchain, IoT, tech trends, democratizing finance. I mean, this is a crazy week. So this what do we have next week on episode 75, the Diamond Jubilee episode? <laughs> yeah. Uh, we have episode 75. We have Nilofar Merchant, author of The Power of Onlyness. Uh, you know, a thinker's 50, extraordinary thought leader, and she's uh, – She's, she's amazing. Her, and her book is fantastic. Another fantastic follow on Twitter as well, at Nilufar. 
We have Sean Mandel. He's vice president of TELUS Digital. So you've got one of the largest companies in Canada, and this guy is running it like a startup. So he's got digital laboratories. He's running sprints and scrums and, and delivering innovation at unbelievable pace at a, at a, at a hugely you know, multi-billion dollar company. So we're going to learn from Sean and how he's bringing a startup mindset into it and, and changing the culture of, of a giant company in, uh, in Canada. And we have Ashutosh Nanshwar, uh, Assistant Vice President, Relationship Management Data Sciences at University of Southern California. So another machine learning, AI, thought leader, author, and it's going to be a, an incredible lineup. So you're going to hear from a business management guru to one of the top chief digital evangelists, chief, chief, chief digital officers in the world, and then a data science AI expert. So it's going to be a jam-packed Friday. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, we're seeing some great guests, and as always, you know, if you've got a if you've got something fun to talk about on the enterprise side, a CXO, a venture capitalist, a startup, you know, someone in the industry, you know, when it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Come join us there. And hey, quick push, you know, if you're doing Thinkers Fifty and you want to uh, nominate someone, please nominate either Val or Sal's on the global ranking list for one of the world's uh, most prestigious ranking of management and strategy thinkers. Um, just go to the nominations page and put us down under your global ranking nominee. So thanks a lot, everyone. Thanks, everyone. See you next week. Bye-bye.